Mike Global IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. 102. 138. 139. 137. 103. 151. Like many of you, books on espionage find their way to the top of my reading stack. Over this recent Thanksgiving weekend, thanks to Amarillo's talented storytelling, I was swept away from an overly indulgent turkey dinner to the farm, where CIA officers are trained, then to Beijing and a number of countries in the Middle East and Europe as the newly minted intelligence officer worked to keep weapons of mass destruction out of the hands of terrorists. Having lived and traveled widely as a child and student with a BA in international law from Oxford and an MA from Georgetown School of Foreign Service, it's not at all surprising that she was a star recruit. What makes this book different from others is the candid and sensitive way we join Amaryllis as she questions her career, finding another way to foster peace and security. It's great to have you here in Dallas. Thank you so much for inviting me. Over the last several months, you may know that we've had on our program other CIA officers, but most of them had had diplomatic, official diplomatic cover. You, on the other hand, did not always have this protection. Just remind us what is the difference between official and non-official cover. Well, you know, as the geopolitics have changed in the last few decades, the targets are not always members of foreign governments because acts of war, acts of terrorism are now originating with non-state actors, with groups like Al-Qaeda. And where in the olden days, if I can call the Cold War days that now, um, it made sense to be a State Department officer, to, to be the second secretary of such and such, but actually do this work. Um, Nowadays, there are all kinds of, of creative ways to get next to the sources that can help prevent these attacks. You can think of Argo, the movie, is a great example where um, you know the, the cover was this, this film company that was devised to, to conduct an operation in Iran. You say the Cold War is over. I'm not sure if everyone would agree with that right now. Yeah, well, the Cold War, where it was, where it actually worked to wear a wig and glasses. Unfortunately, those days are over. And uh, and a lot of the tradecraft in this book is actually very nostalgic. In that, these days you have biometrics, you have facial recognition, and the the new Cold War, of course, is being prosecuted um, day to day on that technology battlefield. Absolutely. A question that a member of our staff asked me to ask you today, and I thought was very interesting, and she said, how do you prepare, or how did you prepare, mentally for the eventuality that you might have been taken hostage mm. without you know, being recognized by the U.S. government? When I think back on, on my career in reference to that question, it's sort of before and after I had my daughter. Because I think beforehand, it was quite abstract, that, that threat, whether it was um, being captured, whether it was being hurt or killed. Um, you know, I think we feel immortal when we're young, or at least I did. Um, and, and the notion of sacrifice is quite an abstract one. And then as soon as I had my daughter, it's like this, this little embodiment of everything that you hope for the future, but also a reminder of how much there is to lose. And, um, and so after that, I really did have to get quiet on a regular basis and think about why I was doing what I was doing and whether the, the payoff in terms of 
leaving her a safer world was worth the short-term risk. In hindsight, do you have any reservations or doubts about the way you brought your daughter sometimes as a, as a prop, as part of your disguise, or part of your cover? Well, really more than that, it was a choice of having her with me for her own safety. Um, and, you know, I, I have friends who are foreign correspondents, who are journalists um, in you know, covering the Israel-Palestine conflict and, and in Israel, but spending a lot of time in, in Gaza and elsewhere, and they're raising their two children there. And I think it's quite a similar calculus, which is saying, yes, you know, I'm aware that the, the places where I'm, where I'm living and working are dangerous in a different way from back home. But we know that, you know, all too often you can walk down the street here and encounter Danger. I mean, my the, the only family member I have who's been affected by gun violence is my sister-in-law, and that was in a in a suburban apartment complex in Ohio. As as you may know, you're the fourth speaker to appear in our council's Women in Intelligence program. Are there advantages, and what are the disadvantages to being women in that line of work? I think women are uniquely well suited, actually, to this kind of work. I think human intelligence, when it's done really well focuses on the human part of, of, of that term. Um, the, the ability to not just listen to the people that you hate and fear most in the world, but to actually cultivate some kind of trust and commonality with them, authentic trust and commonality, in order to be able to understand why they're doing what they're doing and what they might do next. And that kind of emotional intelligence and um, you know, intuition, I think we tend to think of as more kind of feminine approach to problem solving. So when I started out, it, it was less common to see women in leadership positions. And now, of course, not just the leader of CIA, but but of all the directorates beneath her are women. And I, I think that's a really exciting and hopeful development. As you write in the book, your uh, former husband, Dean, had a very different type of career. And you also extrapolate from that how the CIA has really are split now in two different areas. One, the traditional CIA and what we think of of gathering information, recruiting spies, and then more uh, interventionist kinetic. Talk about that. Uh, you know, I think this was a reaction to the incredible trauma of 9-11 and the fear of another attack happening where the intelligence community began to expand its paramilitary capabilities um, which in many ways are, are reduplication or, or, or a complement to the military themselves. And I think realized over the course of the decade that followed that actually we have the military for that, that what is incredibly unique about CIA is that even within the entire intelligence community, it's the only human intelligence focused agency. And that challenge of going and not dealing with the adversary by destroying them, but dealing with the adversary by befriending them is really unique in our national security infrastructure. And I think there has been a realization that um, it is so valuable that it's worth doubling down on that and, and correcting this kind of um, excursion into, into the paramilitary. This week is December 9th, and today is December 11th, and the Washington Post all week has been running these articles, and I'm sure you've been reading them, the so-called Afghanistan papers. What's your reaction to that? I think that, um, I think that review of 
how we got where we are today, what we did right in the fog of war and what we didn't, and ensuring that um, that those lessons are metabolized and and mistakes are not repeated is the sign of a, of a maturing country. And I know sometimes we don't feel like we're a maturing country, but I, I do think even, you know, in, in our digestion of the, the enhanced interrogation program, the torture program, which in my view is an incredibly poisonous um, phase in, in our national security decision-making, our ability to, as a country, digest that decide that not only does it not work, but even if it did, it is so ideologically at odds with who we are as a country that we would have nothing left to fight for if we continue to use it. I think that it's encouraging to see us have these conversations about um, what mistakes were made and, and ensuring that we don't do it again. I do think that there are some that, some of those conversations that need to be had more robustly. I think the drone program is one of them. Um, and so I, I'm glad to see us continuing to, to hold ourselves to account as the city on the hill. Um, and I'm, I'm also glad to see at the moment with the whistleblower, for example, that the system works, that you can bring information of concern to the people's representatives without putting thousands of classified cables unredacted online and that that system still allows those concerns to be voiced. I think that's very encouraging. I agree with you. I just wish it hadn't been this week because I don't think the American public's paying that much attention to it because of the in impeachment inquiry. Well, that's an ongoing challenge. And I, I, I feel that so keenly, the fact that headlines about the war on Yemen we only see in the rolling lower third on the, uh, on the news or- If you're uh, watching BBC. Uh, that's right. And uh, you know, I sometimes, darkly joke with my husband, you know, I wish that that the political candidates in this election would have some involvement with South Sudan, with Yemen, with some of these countries, because that's the only way that attention is brought to these situations for the American electorate anymore, is if in some way they play a role in the kind of psychodrama that's playing out on our cable news right now. And I hope that after this election, we can move beyond that and turn our focus back to things that are of such significance for, for uh, America and the world going forward. Could I ask you to read this next? The agency taught me to fight terrorism by convincing my enemy that I'm scary. Zoe taught me to fight by taking off my mask and showing my enemy that I'm human. In that hallway, Surrounded by metal vault doors that lead into giant airtight rooms of secrets, I know that both paths might lead to security, but only Zoe's path leads to actual peace. What is Zoe's path? Zoe, my daughter, when she was born, I, I was working overseas and playing many different roles on any given day. And I had the experience that I think so many of us have as parents of being totally clocked by my kid. I mean, she she saw me in in absolute brilliant technicolor and she knew when I was faking and when I was being myself and began to be this kind of touchstone for me that I realized she would respond so much more strongly to me when I was vulnerable, when I was candid. And it turns out that so did my sources, so did my colleagues that, um, in some kind of counterintuitive sense, showing some humanity, some vulnerability, actually made me closer to the sources uh, that I was working with, even those who who belonged to groups that um, that posed us 
threat and, and harm. I want to ask you about an issue that's really bothered me ever since I saw an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago. It just haunted me. And just recently, Peter Galbraith had a story about it. And that's the jihadi children. And it's just really being largely ignored. And it's such a tough problem. It is. I was just in Holland. And, it, and there, it's a very live issue just in these last few weeks around whether or not to, to, to bring these children home or what to do with them. I, I think that as we mature beyond the immediate response to 9-11, we really need to, in many different ways, begin thinking about the long term, about preventing extremism rather than always responding to it in a game of whack-a-mole. And one of the things that's most important is the, the way that children and, and adolescents around the world form their view of us, because when they lose parents to a drone strike or they uh, are left in, in a camp and, and not allowed to return home at seven or eight or nine years old, what we risk doing is cultivating the next generation of extremists who, who could very well put us in danger. So it's really in our own national security interests to um, think with, with sensibility but also with compassion as, as we tackle these longer term issues. So what are you doing now? You've got a book. You're almost finished with your book tour. What's next? I'm working a lot on on documentary film and journalism around all kinds of geopolitical issues that um, are are laced into extremism and terrorism. Uh, these networks have so much overlap, and I think humanizing the other around the world and here at home, frankly, at a time where we are really having difficulty listening to one another, even in our own country. Um, humanizing the other really is, I think, the great work of our generation, and I hope to contribute to that a little bit. Thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk. This is a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. As 2019 draws to a close, my producers, Kara Schechtman and Kayla Smith, join me in wishing you and your families the best of the holidays, and let's all hope for a healthy and peaceful new year. I hope you'll subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Tell your friends about it. And as always, what's your Global IQ?